Garde well, Mr. Morris. Do not fail here tonight. We are dealing with forces beyond all human experience and enormous power. So guard her well. Otherwise, your precious Lucy will become a bitch of the devil. A whore of darkness. <laughs> Margot Mutter. I'm Vax Gall. I'm Gretchen Felker Martin. And, and we're, we're out, out to get, get you. <laughs> we love some ASMR. <laughs> Welcome back, listeners. I'm your unreliable narrator. Vax, as always, our sirens call, and we're plumbing the depths of queer text and horror. And today we have a very special treat for you as we'll be discussing 1992's Bram Stoker's Dracula with the host, curator, and creator of the Deadlights Theater on Patreon, author of the highly anticipated upcoming novel Cuckoo. And of course, we can't forget one of the reasons this show is happening in the first place. Join me in welcoming to the show author of Manhunt, Gretchen Felker. Martin, Gretchen, hello. What a what an intro. Thank you so much, Margo. Thank you for being here. We are so excited to have you here. I'm, I'm very excited to be here. It's been a long time coming. We've been trying to put this together for, what, like five, six months? Yeah. Listen, here's the thing. We've simply crossed oceans of time to find each other. Oh, and here we are. <laughs> Sometimes an ocean of time is six months. I love that that's the line that got Gary Oldman to do the movie. Right? I know. And even though it upsets all that is the narrative structure of the novel, it is phenomenal. Here's the thing. To me, it's the secret sauce. It's what Dracula needs. Like... You know, I'm I'm not going to say that my beautiful, xenophobic, weirdo, gay baby, <laughs> Bram Stoker, was wrong to not have Dracula and Mina be bound forever across history. But Francis Ford Coppola was more right to do it. <laughs> Listen, Bram Stoker was processing a lot. <laughs> he really was. <laughs> oh. A thing we should get out in the open is that we are not going to be able to talk about everything that you might expect us to today. Not just because you've gone through a move and you're in the middle of doing this, we want to respect your time, but also it would be so easy to get lost in the madness that is this story across oceans of time, across Indeed. its many adaptations and inspirations. Very true. And hey, there's always another adaptation of Dracula to talk about. It's true every single year. Everyone. Right. So now to kind of pull back a little bit and discuss you and your work and what you love about horror, give us a little bit of an idea about where you came from. When, when you met horror, when horror met you. I mean, I think that my formative experiences with, with being terrified by media, there's two of them. The first, my dad read me the chapter in The Hobbit where Bilbo and Gollum tell riddles in the dark. Yeah. And if Bilbo loses, Gollum's going to eat him. Excellent. <laughs> it scared me so badly. Mm -hmm. I had nightmares for days. And then I made my dad read it to me again. Yeah. 
because I love to be scared. <laughs> I love to be unsafe in a way that I'm in charge of. Mm-hmm. What was the second? Yeah. The second one is the kitchen scene in Jurassic Park. <gasps> correct. Yes. I saw that when I was so correct. young, like six, seven years old. And I can vividly remember hiding behind the couch and peeking over the top as the older kids in our, our family group were watching and just feeling feeling hunted mm-hmm. and how like exhilarating that was for me even as it was like completely ruining my life <laughs> right and in a fictional term that can be something that you can process especially as a queer person yeah absolutely and you know i grew up very very obviously kind of faggy in rural new hampshire which as you can imagine Rough. did not go super smoothly yeah. so like those are very very those were very relatable experiences, even if I didn't have the words to articulate how or why. And I was also, um, I was a huge dinosaur kid. I wanted to be a paleontologist until I was probably like 12 or 13 yeah. and realized that it was mostly being outside and not having money. <laughs> but you have bones. You do. You're very rich in bones. I have a friend who has a paleontology degree and does digs every summer. Is that Taryn? Yeah, Taryn, lovely. Loves Jurassic Park. And recently discovered her own like triceratops and got to name it. And I was like, that's cool. That's, that's objectively the coolest thing really I've cool. ever fucking heard. You know what? Forget this. I want to be a paleontologist again. <laughs> Time for a paleontology degree. Let's go. Oh, I'm not going to get the degree. I'm just going to go dig shit out. Oh, I mean, yeah. Let's go dig up some bones. I'm sure everyone will be fine with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bex, I don't know if you know, or if you know, if we can say, do you know the name of the triceratops? Keras, which I believe is Greek for horn, which yeah, tracks. Also a Greek mythology kid, so. The Venn diagram there just syncs up so <laughs> well. It does, yeah. yeah. There's, there's a teeny little sliver of, of differentiation, but not much. Yeah. So, Gretchen, from those experiences, when did you decide, and what made you decide that you wanted to start really digging your hands into the clay of horror? I think for me the moment where it switched over from like something that I incidentally couldn't look away from to something that I was actively seeking out over and over again. (sighs) When I was 11, again, I I had these two experiences that were really, really permanently frame shifting for my brain chemistry. One, I learned to read very late. So I, I could finally read for myself when I was like nine, almost 10 And I went pretty quickly from, you know, Dr. Seuss to like Michael Crichton. Um, (laughs) But the big experience for me came when I was 11 and I read Stephen King's It. That's an age to read that. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, it's the age the kids are. Uh Uh-huh. Pretty much. I think they're they're between 11 and 13. And it changed my whole life Mm -hmm. to, to get to this book way too early. And pretty much not understand half of it at all because it's all about (laughs) 40-year-olds. And I was like, what? what?" (laughs) But it's also about coming into adulthood and realizing that you're alone in the world and discovering community and all of these things that were things that I wanted or things that I was starting to discover in my own life. And, you know, crucially, it's also a book about realizing that many of the adults around you are not not only not going to keep you safe they're going to prey on you in one way or another 
or play with you the way that cats play with mice, mm-hmm. which was something that it was really important for me to be able to articulate. Yeah. Uh, because that was happening in my life as it happens, mm-hmm. I think to most queer kids. Mm. You know, something that struck me while reading, it came from the closet, queer reflections on horror is that even though we're closeted as children, once we know we can be seen by others they can see us before we do. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It, it makes you very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And the other big experience, which is sort of blessedly a little less complicated, is that a family friend left a DVD box set of the Alien movies at our house. Yeah. And so I started to watch all of the Alien movies and it just like serially terrify myself so badly that I couldn't sleep. Yeah. Thanks, Dan O'Bannon. Yeah. Thank you very much. So I became like obsessively fixated on Alien. The other thing that I really wanted to do as a kid was be one of the people who sculpts and designs monsters for science fiction movies. Mm. I love that. Um, You know, like the Lucasfilms, Mm -hmm. Industrial Light and Magic production studios and stuff. That was like, I was always watching specials on them and researching the technical work behind miniatures and puppets and the early days of CGI. Well, then this is really a film for you because it's such a visual tour de force of the birth of cinematic effects, practical effects, and in-camera effects. Yep. This is the movie for me. Um, (laughs) I first saw Bram Stoker's Dracula when I was like 13. I had just started having sex with other boys. And it was just, it was this like complete fucking horrible wet nightmare explosion in my head like literally the scene where sadie frost lucy westerner explodes in blood yeah the the walls all like do the shining around her as as dracula turns into a wolf and rips her throat out what a moment Mm -hmm. i know it's it's so obviously orgasmic and sadie frost is so good in this film oh she's so fucking good i love her so much (laughs) just an incredible fucking shame Mm -hmm. she didn't have a bigger career Mm mm-hmm A friend of mine once said that every great movie stars 20 dudes you know Mm -hmm. and one woman who's amazing and was never in anything else again because a producer raped her. Real. Fucking real. 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 (sighs) Yeah. Roll out the guillotine. I know. God, well and truly. (laughs) So what led you to choosing this one? Because we looked over a list of several movies and you were immediate. I've never gotten a chance to talk about it in oh. like a any kind of official setting yeah and i think a lot of people don't take it seriously from a scholarly standpoint mm-hmm. which to me is so infuriating because in my in my mind in my experience it's the definitive dracula when i picture dracula i i picture that fucking appalling disgusting makeup and that yeah. incredible aiko ishioka gown yes like, that's mm-hmm. dracula absolutely fucking changed the game in that movie Oh, for sure. Some of the greatest costuming ever done in anything. And for, yeah, for a lot of people, it's like the cultural touchstone for Dracula. Like, yeah. it's the one they know and they see. Yeah, for a lot of people, even now, I think, even with adaptations coming out once a year, you know, it's like, wow, here's my annual event, a new Dracula. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the only movie that I would really put up next to it is like Murnau's Herzog's take on Nosferatu. I think that those are like comparatively in the same ballpark in terms of interpreting what the books are sort of about, you know, in the way that Bram Stoker's Dracula is about excess and symbolism and sexuality. 
Herzog's Nosferatu is much more about the vampire's existence as like traversal of the abyss. Ooh, yeah. Mm -hmm. For sure. It's very good. It's so good. It's amazing to me that Dracula is one of the most adapted stories and you can see it and how things turn into the canon and character of his story and of Mina Harker. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like part of why the 92 Dracula isn't taken as seriously in sort of scholarly circles, a shame as it is for that to be the case, is that, and I'm allowed to say it because I am one, academics are bad at delineating what is excess deliberately and what is excess in a way of oh this is just bad yeah even if it was bad a lot of people don't like to look at bad media whereas it's often very helpful to do so but i think there is something to it that the original dracula the novel itself is about excess it's just also very victorian because bram stoker was repressing so much well you know he wrote that in the aftermath of the oscar wilde trial Indeed. So after yeah. that trial... Oh boy, is he repressing. Everything kind of changed in terms of how relationships and sexuality... You know, while of course it's still Victorian society, so much had changed in perceptions and so much of a spotlight had now been put on to even the kind of like vaguely permissible homosexuality that was yes romantic friendships and the things of that nature so mm-hmm. like he was working through so much there that <laughs> yeah even with the novel you can say okay well maybe this is a commentary on misogyny but you don't really have to do that yes yeah. so yeah i think a lot of time people are like oh yeah it's about excess but don't really have to confront the excess because it doesn't seem excessive to a modern standpoint. You look at the 92 one and that is excessive. Mm -hmm. And in a way that is beautiful, like it's beautiful excess. It's just a lot if you're like used to a very restrained Dracula, I suppose. Yeah. But I think it's beautiful and speaks to the spirit of it in a way that is very, very fun and interesting to look at. I think so too. You know, if if you're setting the, the novel and the film next to each other, as far as I can see, the spirit animating both of them is very, very similar. Mm-hmm. And it's just that they are being acted upon and acting in response to very different time frames. Because when Dracula came out, it was considered extremely salacious and, you know, culturally unsafe, mm-hmm. which is something that has, has just dogged horror for, for centuries now. It still mm-hmm. does. Something <laughs> that I think about a lot is that when the cabinet of Dr. Caligari came to America, people protested it. <laughs> and some of it was because like, oh, you know, son of a bitch, we're not showing German movies while we're at war with the Kaiser. Yeah. But a lot of it was also like, this is so depraved. This is so evil. It's going to inspire people to murder each other. And I guess like go in evil cabinets or something. Um <laughs> Which is just so demented now. Yeah, like, like if you think about, I mean, evil armoires are still an issue yeah. that we are dealing with. Yeah, and, and C.S. Lewis will someday answer for his crimes. <laughs> for his crimes, <laughs> is a kind? in this economy. Imagine. I also think that it's it's very fascinating that you know you look at the excess that is portrayed in ninety two. And it's all about bringing what was subtextual to the surface. Mm-hmm. The idea of yes. what a lascivious woman would be in the turn of the century is much different when you're portraying it at the end of the next century. For sure. 
And so what goes from courtships and homoromantic friendships to having Sadie Frost's rendition of Lucy Westerner, who is just all out in the open with it, but it still rings true to that contempt for right. women's possession of their own bodies. Yes. Yeah, and I mean, part of it is like the same controversy and the same issue and that Lucy in the novel wanted to marry three men because she couldn't stand to break any of their hearts. And Lucy in the 92 version is like, I could sleep with all three of these men. And that's the controversial part is that she's like, but I could have them all. <laughs> it's just the way we frame it and talk about it has yeah, changed. Absolutely. In the novel, it's they could all have me. I could marry them and they could have me yes. as their wife because it's that frame of a Victorian. You're either a virginal bride to be or you are a mother and wife. Mm -hmm. Anything else, you're a whore and a spawn of the devil. But then in the 92 version, right. it's I could have them. I could possess this. Right. She's a much more modern kind of figure. Yeah, and quite frankly, good for her. She yeah. should be allowed to have them all. Lucy Westenra <laughs> did nothing wrong. She did nothing wrong. She didn't even get to eat that baby. Like, what are we all complaining about? At least in the novel, she did get to eat some pets. <laughs> yeah, true. Shout out Bluefer Lady. <laughs> we love the Bluefer Lady in this house. <laughs> Although, I will say, if I was an impressionable young child and saw a hot vampire lady in a wedding dress, I'd go with her. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be like, Literally well... anywhere. I would still go with her. Me too. I know what I'm about. That's okay. And that wedding dress, what an incredible piece of costuming. It's so... I think my favorite part about it is that she looks so much better in it when she's dead. Yes. She looks so elegant. I mean, that collar. Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking about Jurassic Park. Yeah, it has a little <laughs> bit of the, the dilophosaurus to it. I love uh, that And she her. just looks amazing. Mm-hmm. And I love, this is the part I love about the movie yeah. is they brought together this murderer's row of creative geniuses to put on one of the most old school, like to the point that it was all, almost all shot on that soundstage. Which is such a, A, it's such a smart way to save money. Yeah. B, it's only a smart way to save money because you can't tell. <laughs> Which is interesting in the final product because I know that Coppola wanted to really minimize the sets. He wanted to use Ishioka's costumes as the sets, right? Because they're the draw to the characters, to the actors, and our central figures. So he wanted to do more impressionistic backgrounds that probably would have pulled more mm -hmm. towards tricks they already used where they're projecting backgrounds onto yeah. screens throughout the film. Uh -huh. But even when it expanded to more traditional sets, it still pulled it off so well. And a thing that I noticed on this last viewing is... No problem seeing any night scene. Hmm, funny about that. <laughs> no, it's, it's all perfectly lit. I keep saying this about the Barbie movie. I'm like, I can't wait to watch a movie where I'll get to like see everything happening. Right. It's going to be great. <laughs> Love to be able to see what's happening on a screen. Yeah. I mean, it's the seesaw of cinematic ability to shoot at night has definitely mm -hmm. done a lot of pitching around. Yeah. But it is at a very low ebb right now. You know, but even even going back, you can rewatch Deliverance, which is an incredible movie, a wonderful movie. And it has this like completely nonsensical blue tinted day for night <laughs> scene right in the middle of it that just like does not scan yeah. at all. Well, you know, films are always an experiment. They truly are. Great film, though. If you're listening to this and you haven't seen Deliverance, just go watch Deliverance. Go watch Deliverance. Be it's great. so good. You will not regret <laughs> it. Well, 
might. <laughs> but in a good way that will make me happy. Just for context for listeners, 1992's Bram Stoker's Dracula, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. This was at kind of a low ebb for his career. Yeah, this is his last great film. In, it in, is. Like, until Cosmopolis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, he really ducked out for a while. On one of the commentary tracks, he describes the process of making films, especially within studio environments, as cooking for people who don't like to eat. Yep. You know, it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. You're doing a, a lot of effort and putting in a, a lot of stress. And somebody's always got something to complain about. So I, I get right, why he kind of walked out the door. I mean, these are people who are throwing steak a poivre at your head because it's not dry enough. Right. It's very funny that that whole like metaphor positions him as uh, the chef in the menu. Oh my God. The Anya Taylor type. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. He's just like, I cook for you and you all hate it and it sucks and now you're all on my shit list forever. <laughs> But he decided, because he was in financial straits with America's Zoetrope, to make a couple of movies he said he never would. Mm-hmm. First, he made Godfather 3. Yeah. And then afterwards, Winona Ryder, who had bowed out right at the beginning of that production, came to him with a script from Jim Hart for Bram Stoker's Dracula. And he convinced the studio to make it and to let him make it by not shooting on location like he was typically one to do you know he went over on a lot of yeah. budgets and uh, he decided i'll shoot this all on a soundstage and we're gonna do the most true to the novel version of dracula yeah and mm-hmm. and by a lot of stretch that's true yeah like there's some big swings in there for some changes but on the whole mm-hmm. hey it's one of the few adaptations to have all three of lucy's suitors yeah. in normally poor quincy morris gets the chop which is a tragedy all it is Anytime you don't have Quincy Morris in a Dracula film, it's a tragedy. You should be asking, where is it Quincy really Morris? Is. I mean, how could you pass up the opportunity to have that fucking, what is it, like a leopard skin waistcoat? Oh, <laughs> yeah. And just having a cowboy in England, that is a classic. Yeah, it's so cool. It's funny. Like, they're all making plans in the novel, and he just shoots a bat out the window and is like, sorry, I thought it was Dracula. And you're like, <laughs> perfect. No, no, it's what a man. <laughs> Her three beautiful himbos. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Carrie always, oh, love him. He plays a great Arthur. He's such yeah. an amazing, like, unable to be surprised Englishman. <laughs> yes. The unflappable aristocrat. How very droll. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing that made his Dracula different was that he decided, and this was in the script with Jim Hart, that they were going to link what was previously just inspired by Vlad Tepes III to be deeper into that history. And so they start the film mm-hmm. in the 1400s. I think it's like 1462. Yeah, 1462. So they started there with Vlad, and it has the frame story where the Princess Elizabeth, who was also played by Winona Ryder, after a great battle is tricked and she throws herself off the castle walls into the river below. He's pretty angry about it. She can't get buried in a Christian cemetery. So he strikes out and drinks the blood of God <laughs> like one is to do. And he becomes Dracul. Incredible. And so that sets up the frame narrative that will then continue through the film when he sees Mina Murray slash Mina Harker as the reincarnation of his long lost love. What a film. Just what a film. It's it's absolutely incredible. Uh, one of the things to me that stood out 
Besides the stuff we've just like initially thrown on the table about excess was the progression of roles that comes up both in the novel and in the film. You know, when Lucy decides on a suitor, she's going from a single woman to a fiance to become a wife. And when Mina gets married, she goes from being this fiance to the wife mother figure. And so there's a lot in the story about the progression of people's roles in society, even down to terms of endearment, when they meet Van Helsing to when he is professor. Something that I thought was really, really intelligent in the film adaptation is the conflation of Lucy's conversion and Jonathan and Mina's marriage. Mm, yeah. They're like, they're intercut. And, you know, whether Coppola did it because it looks awesome and he recognizes that there's a thematic bridge or whether he has like a specific point about our ideas about marriage and masculinity and femininity. It's so rich. There's so much in the text there to see marriage as this kind of like symbolic death and rebirth into something that is worse. <laughs> it, well, that's interesting. And something that's fundamentally parasitic too. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. You're absolutely right there. And I think having it cross cut with Lucy's, you know, baptism of blood is really interesting because they're each giving themselves away, right? Yeah. And I think, especially parasitic, when you think about earlier when Mina says to Lucy that Jonathan thinks he's too poor to marry her. Mm -hmm. And Mina is, I mean, I can't remember if it's established in the film, but certainly in the novel, works. She's a schoolmistress and ostensibly very intelligent. So the idea that he's not good enough for her and therefore is sort of leeching off her in a way that is parasitic... Uh, ties into that very very neatly I think yeah yeah no they they do get into that in the film very briefly yeah so in the novel John Seward and Mina Murray are the two main characters they are the ones who have the most laid out in front of us and I just find it really interesting the way they set up that frame narrative because I do agree with you that there was something missing in the way that story goes but there's so much lost in Mina's cleverness. She's yeah. more empowered, but she has less nuance almost. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Yeah. I miss her being the train fiend who solves yeah. everything by being like, I know the exact train schedule because I think it's cool. And I'm like, okay. I love that's, you so much. That's incredibly autistic. <laughs> exactly. I think knowledge, she's great. Knowledge of trains. <laughs> yeah. She's um, like, I love trains. I thought they're cool. So I memorized the entire schedule for you. And I'm like, perfect. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> I even married a man who has the personality of one. <laughs> oh, poor Jonathan Parker, our poor friend. It's kind of an interesting showcase for our differing ideas about like, not just ideal womanhood, but feminine empowerment. Mm -hmm. Because like you said, she is more, you know, empowered in sort of the 90s girl boss sense in Bram Stoker's Dracula. But she's also much less complex. Mm -hmm. And it, it really shows you the limits of like empowerment as a model for storytelling. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like that final scene, she gets to swing the sword and do the killing blow. But it's not like in the novel where she has the agency to decide to be hypnotized by, by Van Helsing to lay out the plan in which they were going to ambush Dracula. So it's, I think it's a different. Yeah, very different type of nuance and strength that they're trying to showcase. Mm -hmm. Certainly in a visual medium, it's probably 
more interesting to look at her swinging the sword and decapitating him than her being like, yeah. let's look at some train schedules, guys. <laughs> True. Another thing about that, just before we jump over and move on somewhere, is that even though she has possibly more nuance yeah. and complexity in the novel for, for the things that she does cleverly or that she figures out before anyone else, she's also always doing these in service to the men around her. So she does this as a support right. structure and kind of a tool yes. to these men and their story. Right. Yes. We don't really understand how she feels about and, it. And very notably, is doing it all by being shut out. They're all like, no, this will scare you. You can't do it. And she's like, okay, but this is how you're going to get yeah. caught. <laughs> because I know that. We were talking about um, this this like romance and you know the explicit link mm-hmm. to the Vlad the Impaler sort of mythology as the missing piece in Dracula. And I, I do think that it it functions well and obviously this is one of my favorite movies ever made i can watch it at any time it's such a feast it's such a spectacle but Mm -hmm. going back to all the things that stoker is processing through the real missing piece in dracula is that dracula and jonathan Mm -hmm. don't fuck you're exactly right because the thing that threw me for a loop (laughs) was when he rebukes the brides and tells them to stay away from Jonathan Harker, they leave out one crucial line in the film. Yeah. This man belongs to this me. Man, he belongs yeah. to it's, me. It, I mean, Jonathan is the princess yeah. in the tower. Yeah. And it's like, I've seen some of Stoker's notes that he took while he was sort of workshopping the novel. And it went through so many different drafts as things are inclined to do. But over and over in those notes, you see that this man is mine. This man belongs to me this constant obsession with a Harker belonging to Dracula. And it's like, yeah, there's a lot you're going through here, bud. And I see what's happening here and what you're processing because it is this idea of Dracula possesses Jonathan body and soul. Mm -hmm. Well, what's interesting about that is that by creating the frame narrative between Gary Oldman and Winona Ryder, it kind of pushes Jonathan to the outside And it's interesting that it does it where it kind of plays Dracula straight, which he's not a very straight character. No. So I I just found that kind of interesting, too, because violence in horror movies is almost always sexually charged. And Dracula is one of the biggest roots of that in our fictional history. Certainly in a vampire movie where the the whole violence is penetration, you know, like Mm -hmm. it's it's not an overly subtle metaphor. And really, that's why you should cast Keanu Reeves, so he could fuck Dracula. <laughs> He'd have had a great God, time. People give Keanu such a hard time for that movie. And, like, I'm no Keanu Reeves acting ability apologist. He does not have any skill. And that's fine. Um, <laughs> he's very beautiful, and it's really all you need. Yeah, he's beautiful, and he's quite yeah, nice by he all He seems like a real gem. That's all you need. But Let's the thing go. that works about this performance <laughs> for me is that Jonathan is a striver. Yeah, this is Jonathan, really. Right, like he's like this little nobody who's trying to claw his way up through the legal profession. And so his like forced, affected accent and stiff body language make a lot of sense. He's he's trying to be something that he's not. It works, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's an intentional success. No. It is a success (laughs) to me. And it's another thing that we can read after the fact that adds an extra layer to the mystery. Yeah, for sure. And just, he's so beholden to his duty as, as some sort of legal representative that he stays in a situation that anyone else would have been like, absolutely not, I'm leaving, this is too much. 
yeah, he thinks that he is not good enough to marry Mina, which totally fair. Yeah. He's not. <laughs> I would also think this. It's fine. <laughs> But because he thinks he's not good enough to marry Mina, he is willing to put himself out, quite literally, on the ledge in order to improve his station in society, which was very stratified. I think, though, we do have to talk about that scene with the brides. I think it's time. I think it's time. I've been sat thinking about it for all 42 minutes. I've been sitting here thinking about the scene with the brides for... uh... Twenty years now. <laughs> Just this part of your brain devoted to that. Scene I mean, at, all I mean times. at some point in my brain, Monica Bellucci is always rising up out of the bed. Oh, yes. In the bed of my heart. Yeah. yeah. It'll never stop. <laughs> One of Coppola's ideas when it came to locations or item or people interacting with Dracula in this film is that when they were in his presence or when they were in his domain, things would not abide by the traditional law of physics. Mm -hmm. A lot of the effects that are here are very much underneath that philosophy. Right, like the rat running on the ceiling, the bottle dripping upside down. Incredible stuff. Mm -hmm. Roman Coppola really pulled it out. The fact that the original special effects producers were like, we can't do any of this. And then Roman Coppola shows up and he's like, yeah, I figured it all out. (laughs) Yeah. Don't worry about it. It's I'll just fine. do it. I'll just do it as one dude. <laughs> and I respect it. Insane. Him. I love Rock King Dracula. Honestly, that is really cool too, because he's also the second unit director. And because of the way they're doing all these shots, him and his team are working directly with the principal actors to get these practical and in-camera and it's on-screen so effects, which is crazy. It is. Uh, anyway, Jonathan Harker is locked in a dungeon. <laughs> Wait, really? We should go get him. Uh, oh. No, he's fine, honestly. Oh, okay. he's into it? Yeah. I think he's having, he's having an okay time. Yeah. I think he's fine. I wonder if after the, the story of Dracula, though, if he had kind of a kink for that. Almost definitely. They get like a really rural castle every year and they're like, all right, honey, leave Quincy Jr. at home. Wouldn't be surprised. I'm sure they have a great time to themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they either have no sex or the most insane sex imaginable. And I think it's the latter. <laughs> I hope so. I really do. But while Jonathan is a prisoner in Dracula's castle, which is amazing, by the way, last little aside I'm going to make is that the, the look of that castle, where the front part oh, of it is yeah. dilapidated, and so it looks like a, a large figure standing on there. That's that reference to Francis Kupka's The Black yeah. Idol. Yeah. An amazing, amazing shot. The matte paintings in this film are incredible. Yeah, they're so good. But while he's exploring the room, eventually he comes to one with a very large bed, and he finds himself drawn there to the three brides of Dracula pulling themselves out from underneath the bed. Incredible yeah. effect. So good. I think all the time about like the the sourceless footprints and stuff in this scene. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know it's like a small thing because you think about animal handlers a lot, or at least I do. <laughs> the snakes they used in their hair and that kind of allusion to a gorgon, yeah. I think is really, really, really it's cool. Really amazing. There's also something so like intense about it, that deliberate way to build anticipation and desire of these footsteps where you have no source for them and you don't know what's coming for you and you're like all right let's go let's see what's about to happen and it's like yeah like no wonder you're sat there wrapped i would be too one thing i love is that they had to make 
an adjustment on set because she was just going to bite the cross off his neck, but instead they ended up going with um, a scene they did this later in post, but it's where the cross dissolves into his chest. (laughs) Because everything is based around this idea that like if, you know, we can talk very briefly about the xenophobia later, but there's all this xenophobia and like Christian propaganda that comes up in Dracula. Yeah. And that's just a, a great little illustration of it there. But God, those fucking girls killed it. Yeah, they did. They're all so good. Yes. And when the two of them, that's not Monica Bellucci, combine, and they almost do that <sighs> gymnastics move where they're like walking backwards as one person. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Mm-hmm. It's so scary. They're, I think it's shot in reverse. Mm-hmm. Well, so much of this film is. There are like five basic magic tricks, so to speak that Roman Coppola used a lot of, and that's like match cutting and shooting in reverse, having those 50-50 mirrors, you know, doing double exposures. And they shoot so much stuff in reverse and it still looks that good today. Right, because it's happening. Yeah, it's happening in front. Or it's like a a, a visual trick that Mm -hmm. is seamless. Right, and you know, I know it's easy for audiences to just kind of gloss over that with modern viewings of films, but... Something that I've noticed and we've talked about in the last few shows has been that art of work that takes place and how if something is tangible and tactile, if you could reach out and grab one of the rats that's running upside down on the rafters, you know, that feels, I don't know, that feels more immersive. Craftsmanship tells over time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This movie still looks perfect. Jurassic Park still looks incredible. You can go back and you can watch like Murnau's Faust or his Nosferatu those movies still look amazing. Yeah. And it's it's because they're putting the work in. They're not fobbing it off on some underpaid studio full of people who are desperately trying to cope with 10,000 correction notes from some idiot at Disney. Well, this is the thing. <sighs> I think this also came up when Unions. we were talking about Hellraiser and we were talking about the the visual work in Hellraiser. And it's like, <sighs> you, can, you can touch these things. People made these. You could pick that up and feel it. The stop motion of Frank coming back to life is just one of the most incredible effects in film. Yeah, incredible. To this day. Perfect. And with that Christopher Young score under there. Yeah, it's like the same here. Like all of these things are happening in front of a camera. And part of your brain, I think, instinctively knows that there is something tangible there. And yeah, it's not being fobbed off on people who shouldn't be having to deal with all of the mess that comes with the effects work. God bless them all. Gretchen, what is the thing that you grab onto every time you rewatch this film? I mean, it's it's different every viewing, depending on, on what I'm reading, what else I'm watching, what I'm working on. I would say the things that have been most on my mind the past year as I've been finishing my next novel, Cuckoo, have been the physical transformations that occur in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Dracula's repeated metamorphoses. He's almost never the same from scene to scene if he's if he's in his non-human form. Stuff like him in the placental call on the Demeter oh, yeah. is such an incredible thing. He's this dead organism that is rebirthing itself mm-hmm. artificially. He's like a jellyfish. Yeah, it's like this ethereal chrysalis. Yeah, absolutely. And when he comes out, he's much more protean. He's constantly changing. He, mm-hmm. he becomes a wolf. He becomes a swarm of rats. He becomes a mist. He becomes the, the bat creature from the confrontation yeah. with Lucy's suitors. And also the wolf creature who initially 
lures Mina into the hedge maze and performs cunnilingus on her while also drinking her blood. So let's, let me hone in on that for a second. So (laughs) one of the things that I really love about this movie is how it takes things that are subtle to a modern reader's eye and, and Hart and Coppola and all the actors brought forth the sexuality to this frothing boil is incredible to me because instead of it being oh mina gets up wondering where lucy is and she looks over the terrace and sees her by the abbey and oh there's some beast biting her neck no we get full-on monster fucking sure did it's incredible and it's this visceral example of how they have brought what they view as her failings mm-hmm. to the surface. But it's also one of the things that like that combined with her and Lucy's little makeout session in the hedge mm-hmm. maze, it's kind of the spark of where the queerness is is pushing into for modern audiences. Absolutely. And it's it's interesting that it comes through in lesbianism which is so much more cinematically acceptable yeah because the sexual tension is so obviously between dracula and jonathan in the castle that the shaving scene where he nicks his neck yeah them at dinner just dracula's hands are constantly on this man yeah um and there's ostensibly no need for they it. have these really really intimate interactions the, the the brides of dracula are almost kind of a proxy yeah it's you know they're not named characters we don't know anything about their desires I've talked about this briefly before and like like this. I did a thesis on queer vampirism in 19th and 20th century literature, which was great. It was called Love Bites, which was very fun. <laughs> um, and there's a theory called heterosexual displacement yeah. where a homosexual desire is displaced through into a heterosexual act. For Dracula in particular, the brides are his like convoy of like, this is where it becomes socially acceptable, but he can't let it get to a point of penetration. Both on the bride's part and on his part, there's a line that he can't cross. And whether that is Stoker being repressed about things, or whether that is this sense of displacement of like, it's never enough when it's displaced. There has to be more. Because like that, a harker belongs to Dracula. Ooh, okay. Follow-up question. So in that sense where the brides act as his agents to Mm -hmm. sublimate this homosexual urge, do you think that that's kind of the example of Jonathan and the brides in the bed as Dracula's will of seducing Jonathan? Yeah. I think it's present authorially. I think you can make a case for it. You know, yeah, it, it's too sure. fraught a text to say this is this and that's that. Mm-hmm. But it's the elements are all present. And I think really tellingly that even though this sexual tension between Dracula and the Count is sublimated into this encounter with the brides, what's the net result? They eat a baby. They perform the exact inverse of heterosexual fortication. Mm-hmm. Iconic. Yeah, like... Um, they take a life out of the world. Yes. And also, like, Dracula interrupts at, like, the height of the, the tension, both sort of textually and cinematically in terms of yep. the 92 film. And and doing that kind of redirects all of Jonathan's focus and fear and desire immediately back onto himself. So he still gets all the emotional benefit of it. He gets to see the desire and the fear. He just doesn't do the act, but he still gets to be like this sort of imperator figure. And you can see it. You can see it in his eyes. He is so into it. Man, that uh, 
that dolly effect where they bring oldman in and he's he's so believably flying and you know it's some of it is is surely incredibly skilled mechanical professionals on set but it's also just the nature of ishioka's costume yeah there's all this extra negative space under him for them to play in they can have these bulky artifices to move actors around space and it just looks incredible that robe that he comes up in when jonathan goes back down to the crypt and he comes up in that gold robe that's based on the kiss yeah yeah the Klimt illustration it's really incredible i mean there's so many references that they dig into through there that they bring up yeah just in art like when they redo in the castle that self-portrait is based on albert Durer's self-portrait of a young man and that's how they get yeah that modification to look like a young Gary Oldman. That's so cool. Oh, Ishioka is just like such a huge influence on me and on so many movie lovers. Even her stuff in movies that I don't think are very good, like The Cell or The Fall. Mm-hmm. I do think The Fall is good. Um, the Cell is interesting. It's interesting. It's visually stunning. Yeah. One of the most astounding movies to look mm-hmm. at. You could just hit mute. Yeah, you really could. So another thing I found fascinating about Bram Stoker's Dracula was the cast, because it's an an incredible cast of actors who, for the most part, with with the exception of like Ryder and Anthony Hopkins, were mostly up and coming young actors. Even though Keanu Reeves had proven himself Mm -hmm. at the box office, he still wasn't that much of a name. So like everybody in it is just like young and sexy or is Dr. Seward. <laughs> Brutal. Yeah, God, he's so great. He's like a just a, a really fantastic stage actor and such a main. His physicality is so good. Yeah. Even his pratfall over the bear. <laughs> so good. I love that he sat on the hat. Yeah. One of my favorite shots with him, in fact, is the one where he's speaking into the phonograph. Mm-hmm. Another thing I love in this film is just how much of the technology of the mm-hmm. time, much like in Stoker's novel, got used and put on screen. But he's dictating into his phonograph and you yeah. see the reflection of his face in it. You can just see how he yeah. framed himself. And I don't know, there's something wonderful in that. It's this distortion of his own self-image. Mm-hmm. He's almost Chaplin-esque. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I can see that. I have a friend who just absolutely hates Seward. <laughs> like has been reading the novel and just <laughs> That's such a funny literary figure to have really strong feelings hates about. Him. Like just every time I was reading it and it's just like, oh, it's this fucking guy again. And I'm like, wow. Oh, here comes Dr. Seward. He's gonna look me straight in the eye the entire time. He's not gonna blink yeah. once. And it's like of all the people to hate, but also I sort of get it. Like <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, you spend enough time with any text, you're gonna yeah. I was like start relating to it like the people are kind of real. If you were friends with, in any capacity, a doctor of an insane asylum at the turn of the century in Victorian England, I'd probably hate you. Yeah, exactly. But to what you were saying about the cast, it is interesting. You have Carrie Ellis, who's at this point only known mm-hmm. for, I guess... The Princess Bride, and then you have who who plays Quincy? I have no idea who that is. Billy Campbell. Yeah, because he had done That's The Rocketeer right. Right. a little bit before that, and that had done fairly well, and was kind of right. cementing him to hopefully to become a bigger action star, to be in more kind of like romantic thriller type stuff. Right. And then we have Richard Grant as Doctor Seward, 
and Anthony Hopkins as Abraham Van Helsing and a much different kind of Abraham yeah. Van Helsing than other adaptions. Make. What do you, what do you all think of it? I love that. I love that he's trying to match Oldman as Dracula. He's going yeah. way over the top and it really works for me. You know, like when he runs up to Arthur and starts like play humping him <laughs> and shouting that Lucy's the whore of the devil. Like it's really funny. Or when he's, uh, when they're at dinner and he's like, yeah, yeah, we cut off her head and burned her and then she found peace. <laughs> he's seen such big things that yeah. this interpersonal stuff is now kind of workaday. Yeah, like they're at Lucy's funeral and he's like, I need autopsy knives. And they're like, are you gonna do an autopsy on her? And he's like, no, we're gonna cut off her head. Don't worry about it. It's probably fine. And they're like, excuse me? It's <laughs> like, it's her funeral. He does not care. I love mm-hmm. the performance. I think it's great. But because I'm that bitch who's like, mm, I like my granddad. Uh, I, the book granddad. I don't actually like my granddad. <laughs> Important clarifications all around. But I just found him so abrasive and yeah. pointedly argumentative. And part of that is because Coppola, of all the characters in the novel, when they were doing their read through the scripts, he liked Van mm-hmm. Helsing the least because- it just wouldn't work on screen. All through the novel, you know, Van Helsing is is plotting when he speaks. He illustrates things three or four times over to convince yes. these men of what he's saying. Whereas Anthony Hopkins Van Helsing is like, no, fuck you, we are dealing with Nosferatu. <laughs> right. He's, he's just leading them quickly and fast. Yes. Yeah. I think part of it is also... Um, it's a natural sort of inverse that has to happen when you position Dracula as a romantic figure because you have to you have to make Van Helsing more abrasive yes. in order to soften Dracula because there's a balance that has to be found here. You can't have them both be soft because then yeah. something's not right. You're missing a sort of a grit. You can't have them both be abrasive because then everything sucks for everyone all the time. Friction. So it's like one has to come up. Well, I would personally love well, that. Well, <laughs> ostensibly everything sucks um, for everyone theoretically, but... I love to have a bad time. Um, <laughs> a consensual bad time was had by all. <laughs> it's very smart to moderate the characters in these ways where suddenly Van Helsing is propelling the plot sort of as much as its antagonist is he brings the plot a sense of direction suddenly we know what we're doing and Mm -hmm. who we're facing right just by creating that temperament and pace to his character you are eschewing all the plottiness that kind of comes with the novel in the back two-thirds of it i also think his introduction scene where he's talking about the spread of syphilis in relation to Mm -hmm. blood drinking bats is so interesting Because what's this guy doing when we see him? He is discussing the link between parasitism and like the spread of sexual disease. Yep. He is literally combating moral dissolution, mm-hmm. but he's not precious about it. No, he, he's not. No. And, like Coppola knew with both the texts that they had and also like what was going on at the time that there were going to be parallels drawn to the AIDS crisis. And he didn't want to omit that, but he also didn't want to create it to where it was the central function of the story because I don't think that was going to come out right in the wash no matter what. Mm. I mean, I personally would probably love it even more, but yeah, I think it would have been perhaps a a little outre to release it then. And I mean, this is still, this is like what, four or five years after Near Dark had done 
blood transfusions Mm -hmm. and the way that that ends you know it's it always makes me a little leary Mm. oh i I, that ending is uh we'll get there one day i hope (laughs) but there's something very interesting to me about the fact that he saw what was going on there and he knew the way that it could play in and be recognized without taking up all the room there. And they do little things like that throughout the film. Like when they have the absence scene between Mina and Dracula and the absent bubbles come up, Mm -hmm. they actually have multiple images as they do throughout most of the film where they have the bubbles and then they have blood cells and blood platelets that they have tinted green. Um, Mm -hmm. And of course the blood transfusions. The the blood transfusions also notably a sort of heterosexual displacement mm. in that there's a point where Dracula is no longer feeding on Lucy's blood, he's feeding on the blood of the men around her, just in her body. Yeah. So it becomes this sort of way of consuming the men around her without actually having to touch them, which I think is fascinating. Yeah. I hadn't even thought about that. That's such a brilliant observation. Yeah, she kind of becomes a vector point to moral degradation yeah. as a metaphor. Oh. Yes, indeed. That's so fucking smart. <laughs> and of course, it's also like it renders close to explicit that Lucy has maybe been, you know, sexually open with all of these Exactly, men. yeah. Yeah, there's sure is layers. Just to track back, I love that scene when they show up at the party on the estate. Yeah. It's this kind of farce of the three of them falling in. It's like three men and a baby, except the baby is a young Victorian lass. (laughs) Yeah, it's also, um, it's for Mina's benefit Mm -hmm. in some ways. Right, because she's performing for her too. This like highly sexual pantomime from your best friend. Again, a sort of like heterosexual pushing of like, let me entertain these men for you so you can watch me do it. And it's like, okay, like. Well, that's also the sublimation of their own homosexual urges that they aren't (laughs) able to put on screen. At the time it was written, romantic friendships were part of English society to prepare men and women for marriage. It was often encouraged. And there's a wealth of burgeoning love that is being pushed through these relationships that aren't by any means official. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's certainly like quotes in the text where you're like, this is something that is a very deep feeling for both of them. My first ever tattoo is a line from Dracula. And that first letter from Mina to Lucy was, I'm longing to be with you and by the sea where we can talk together freely and build our castles in the air. And it's like, all right. My God, these bitches are gay. (laughs) Yeah, like, and at one point, Lucy makes reference to loving Mina in the way that Jonathan does. And you're like, okay, sure. Yeah, I guess. But yeah, there always has to be a vector point or some way to sort of refract that desire into something that can be open even if it is still scandalous the, in a way. The, the novel tells us that, that Lucy's sexual desires spill the bounds of propriety. It just stops short of telling us that perhaps that also includes yes. her best friend. And it's really interesting to see that sort of start to trickle down into other adaptations. The, the 2013 NBC yeah. Dracula has not only Mina as the reincarnation of Dracula's dead wife, but also Lucy textually being a lesbian in love with Mina and it becoming like a huge big like self-sabotage plot for her where she's like, this is going to lead to her eventually becoming a vampire. Well, see, that's interesting. And again, in what becomes 
canon in these stories as you go on. It, mm-hmm. it becomes the things that people attach to and what they love. I mean, in the NBC one, he's also an American industrialist, which is <laughs> very is. funny. <laughs> well, modernity, the pratfalls of modernity is a big thing with Dracula, right? Like Because yeah. he's only able yeah. to pull off what he does through the means of educating himself on British law, on the way that industry has risen in England and the way that the inroads have been made through Europe. And in part, the fact that superstition is less common when you move into these modern spheres. Whereas it's the, very, very interesting. The common folks in Transylvania are like, absolutely not. I'm not playing with that. And rightly so. Yeah. They either serve him abjectly or do everything they can to avoid him. Yeah. It's very interesting to me because Stoker is so obviously like xenophobic. Mm-hmm. He's afraid of like swarthy Europeans. Yeah, yeah basically um, any diasporic people who have like a little bit of melanin. Yeah, any. Not any of them. And there's also the whole angle where he's really, really digging into aristocrats as parasites. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, given that he's Irish, very funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. To play off that, there's something that feels very modern even today is the fact that this foreign aristocrat smuggles himself into Mm -hmm. england yeah yeah and that's a sentiment unfortunately that is still very timely right he's the scary Mm -hmm. immigrant as much as he's also like master of the house yes yeah there's there's so many layers and it's it's so interesting that he can only thrive in england because england is built to cater to aristocrats to respect money above all else. Yeah. To honor paperwork mm-hmm. over observable reality. <laughs> and also to ignore those who are not part of that cast. Yes. Exactly. I think if Dracula had eaten less important people, he would have totally been okay. Right. Yeah. There's something and the fact that the crew of light are all ostensibly people who have well-respected jobs, have money, are technically by, you know, words on the page cisgender and heterosexual like these are people that would be noticed one of them is a, a noble in his own right it's lord homewood like you've come it's you've come up against another aristocrat except this one's on his home turf and that's the issue if he had stuck to people who were considered less important yeah he probably would have been fine but at the same time part of dracula's tragedy is that he would never consider something like that no and, you yep. know, it passes on to Renfield. I think you see it in the novel as well, but you see it in Tom Waits' version, which we haven't even taken a moment to say that Tom Waits plays Renfield, and it's wonderful. <laughs> He's so, so good. It's a shame that his role is truncated like it is, but I love what we get to see. The thing that he says in his cell as he's talking to Dr. Seward is that lesser life does not interest me. Yeah. And I think the actual quote is, you might as well be eating molecules with chopsticks than to... Interest in- me in the lesser carnivora. Yeah. So you can see how the master has been working his way into Renfield's head as well, mm-hmm. which goes to this yeah. notion of social contagion. I love that he calls Dracula the master of all life. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting because it implies that the purpose of all life is to be food. Yeah. yeah. And that the only person who could be at the top of that chain is someone who can't be eaten and who isn't alive. Yes. Which is the perfect description of the aristocrat, a self-perpetuating 
metastasizing organism that doesn't have a face it just has a name that's so real i was going to talk about it probably more on the next episode because we're going to do fright night the remake oh sick the great horror there are the failures of capitalism you know it's a movie that takes place after the subprime real estate crisis in 2008 which left so many people vulnerable Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. The vampirism of capital, how it will suck labor from you through every fiber until it's gone mm-hmm. because it can and it will continue to eat from you and it will find any way to yeah. feast upon your life. Right. Right down to taking your organs out of your body. And I think especially with, like I say, Stoker was Irish and, you know, the English ravaged Ireland in a way that was very similar to this. They came and they took and they took and Ireland was left and famine and all sorts of horrific situations that I think Stoker probably did hate a lot of their aristocracy for similar reasons. I know he had a very poor childhood. He had a a lot of struggles growing up that I wonder potentially probably informed that in some way. But I do think that as much as obviously Dracula is very xenophobic in nature, it did lead to what I think is one of the scariest sequences, both of the novel and in this film, that's so often left out in adaptations and that's the crossing on the Demeter. Yes. That ship section is so scary. It's so, it's so good that they're making a full-length movie of it. Yeah. I'm so excited for that. Yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. I don't know if it'll be good or not, but I'm I'll definitely be there day one. Oh yeah. Something I was thinking about when we were talking about Ireland and English parasitism of Ireland, which is of yeah. course ongoing. Dracula comes out just a, a few years before the eleven day tour when Queen Victoria takes this like extended carriage ride through Ireland under heavy guard. And it struck me that her attitude towards seeing the deprivation and death going on in Ireland is the same that Dracula takes toward the peasantry around him. Just in the same way that he's unwilling to look at people who are not like socially important and beautiful, who are not like acceptable food for him. Mm -hmm. The first thing that Victoria does when she crosses the borders, order the the shades drawn in her carriage so that she doesn't have to look at the dead bodies stacked by the yeah, side of the which road. Is unfathomably heartless. Yeah, it's it's like it's even more pathetic than being heartless yeah. because she's too sensitive to look at what she's done, but she keeps doing it. Mm-hmm. She knows objectively and and subjectively yeah. that what she's doing is monstrous but doesn't want to see it but it doesn't yeah. stop her it doesn't stop her which is like the most profound failure of humanity yeah. that i can imagine it's himmler staggering away from the execution and yeah. vomiting and it's like which he did the first time that he saw a mass execution he ran yeah, away and, and threw like, up you did this and then he kept yeah and then he kept having it done yeah you know on this primal level that what you're doing is sick and wrong and evil and you keep doing it anyway because if you say that out loud, if you own it and admit it, you are going to have to confront the fact that you have added mm-hmm. to the misery of the yeah. world forever. And there's no taking it back. It's like, it's almost social yeah. suicide. And that's the bubble in which Dracula moves through life. You know, in the, in the movie, he's miserable. Mm-hmm. He hates being alive forever and relates like very, very mercurially to the people around him. He says he's been searching for Mina for centuries. But is there really any textual indication that it's going to make him happy to be with her? No. When he's about to turn her into a vampire, he's miserable. He says he doesn't want to do it. Is there even any textual evidence that he ever did look for her for centuries? 
we see the castle in the state it's in. Right. He goes through this time to figure out his plan to import all of his earthly grave to England and set this all up. And this has taken quite a while. We have no indication that he has ever left that castle or the grounds that he can make it back to in sunlight. Yeah, yeah. He is just existing in this perpetual state of misery that is unable to mm-hmm. let go of itself. He's very resonant with a lot of the modern tyrannical yeah. figures. Like he can't let go of his own misery, but he also can't stop perpetuating misery onto other people. Which, I mean, talk about what it's like to exist as a closeted person for an entire well, adult lifespan. Yeah. You do not wind up a cool, normal guy who makes people <laughs> feel good. Yeah. Damn, that one just hit me across the bow. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes one of these movies or discussions will just like open the door into your actual house and just like get you (laughs) and you're like oh that's exactly what i felt when you said that thing about blood transfusions i was just like oh (laughs) that one got me oh we're not that far out where treatments during that period for hiv and aids were like strictly bound to that and right seeing that the thing is is like with near dark near dark is not a picture that played in every theater Bram Stoker's Dracula played everywhere in the world. Everywhere. So there were a lot of people who were seeing that up there on the screen. Plenty of them didn't know what was going on there, but there were plenty who did. Mm. What a movie. (laughs) Yeah. Can we take a second to talk about what a fucking visual masterpiece this is? Oh, it's so pretty. Yeah, maybe maybe the greatest ever made. When I talk about it, I, I always see it as like, this vision of a complete alternate Hollywood where all of Mm -hmm. the techniques that it pioneers or invents from whole cloth or modernizes from the literal dawn of film. Yeah. When match cuts are like magic to viewers. Well, they were magic. Truly, I know Roman Coppola says it in one of the commentaries, but the original filmmakers were magicians, right? right? And they were harnessing those five Mm -hmm. ideas. Yes. And a lot of the original films are like filmed magic performances. At the same time that this is happening, Jurassic Park is being released. And this zenith of computer-generated effects. Mm -hmm. And for Coppola to come over to the other side and say, no, we're not doing any of that. Yeah. Led to this one film renaissance of these techniques. There's just something, something so beautiful and like maximalistic about it in a way. You know, to, to really do it on screen, yeah. to really detonate all of that fake uh, blood all over this beautifully appointed it. room, to really make that prosthetic suit slash puppet mm-hmm. for the bat monster. I always think of the, the train ride to Dracula's castle. It's incredible work. Mm-hmm. Even right before we get to that scene, we have Mina and John sharing a kiss in the garden and then the peacock feather comes yes. up that makes a perfect yeah. circle. To cover them, yeah. From that circle, it comes into a tunnel in a built set for a miniature model train. So and once good. that train is running across the mountain, the background is a rear projection. And then onto that projection are a set of Gary Oldman's eyes. And then in front of that is Keanu Reeves in the carriage of the train. And then in front of him is a 20-foot journal that they created for the set specifically so they could set it up and film all of that. That multiple images constantly combined in those shots to create that maximalist visual overstimulation. It's an achievement that I wish more filmmakers had had tried to replicate or expand on in their own ways and it's it's like every time i watch it there's a new like detail i have to imagine someday it will come around 
Yeah. I don't know if it'll ever be dominant, but more people will try things like this. It's going to be a struggle because a lot of these things are lost arts. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to say that there aren't more films after this that still use it, but this was the dying day of matte projections. Honestly, the closest I can think of to any sort of films that still have that sort of maximalist style, even if the production isn't necessarily the same, are Baz Luhrmann films. Yeah. And that Baz Luhrmann films indulge in their visual language in a way that is often very overwhelming. And I say this with affection as someone who is very fond of the 90s Romeo and Juliet, but uh, those films are a lot. Yeah. And I think that's probably the closest we have to something, like a style that's still being seen, but very much not the norm. Yeah. While we're on the subject of these effects, just want to throw out a couple of highlights of some of my favorites. One being the carriage rider in the beginning. There is an impossibly long arm that comes down and literally picks up Jonathan Harker. Yeah. And the way that they were able to achieve this in camera is that when that driver pulls up and it's that same shot, they have a swinging bench that came out as the camera pans. So does that seat so that it keeps extending his arm further oh, and further. Cool. Yeah, I love that. So that- smart. And of course, the the coachman yeah. is Dracula, as is honestly traditional to all That's one of my favorite underrated comedy beats of Dracula. Mm-hmm. Is that yeah? He has no servants. He's just running around the castle himself, like making Jonathan food and like being the carriageman and putting away horses. He's like he can't know. I can't look bad in my solicitor's <laughs> eyes. Yeah, they do. Um, this isn't a good movie, but they do a beautiful bit about that in. Shadow of the Vampire. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like a a fictionalization of the making of Nosferatu where Willem Dafoe plays Max Shrek and he's a real vampire. Uh. And he talks about how sad it is that Dracula has no servants, that he has to buy bread. He has to learn how to pour wine. He has to make Jonathan's bed. He does all these like really degraded, servile things. Yeah, and very mundane things ostensibly. But yeah, I just think it's so funny that Dracula's having to run around and be his, be his own servants. Like, oh no, he has to run around and make Jonathan's food and, and make the bed up for him and everything. Yeah, there are a lot of little things in that film that are really funny when he is talking about the fall of his people and then laughs at it. And then Harker left and he's like, what are you doing? Don't laugh at that. Yeah. <laughs> That's our word. <laughs> you can't say that. Very funny. Kicking Harker out of out of queer housing for using the F slur. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Assigned British effort. Oh, uh, I laugh because it's regrettable. That I was. <laughs> <laughs> one day, one day, I'll, we will free ourselves. <laughs> I feel like you you don't have to take that. I weight. I don't. <laughs> I just think. I don't want to live in a world where any child is going to be exposed to the knowledge that British people exist. Listen, if you see me rebuilding Hadrian's Wall by myself, no, you don't. (laughs) (laughs) Just at the border by myself. Don't mind me. (laughs) Oh, I was going to say something else about Dracula just just being a comedian. I think it's so funny. He throws Jonathan's shaving mirror out the window. I just think it's funny. It's really, really funny. So funny. And then when he's like crawling in a lizard like fashion down the wall, I'm like mm-hmm. a comedy king. Oh, I love what him. An, 
incredible. And another classic era effect where they just put all of that on the floor and then set yep. the camera as such and then had him it's crawl. So good. And then they do that incredible rear projection yeah. of the sky. Not to mention when his game falls with Mina the first time, he just runs around to the other side of the street and tries <laughs> it again. Yep. That's great. He's very funny. Yes. Not because he is a funny guy, but because his circumstances are very funny. What's funny about Dracula is that he's doing like a reverse Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. But he's the only one who knows he's doing it. I get that. I perform for myself mostly and probably makes me incredibly off-putting. But I enjoy myself. And that's I just, I just think he's so funny. Well, I found you to be very charming. This, is, this has been such a blast. I'm glad you're enjoying it. These first four episodes are kind of an experiment to get our nerves out. Because like, Bex, right. you talk in conferences. It's been a while yeah, for me. I, I love to show up at, a, at an academic conference, make some points, force everyone to talk about monster fucking, and create discourse in a chat. It's great. You inspire me constantly. <laughs> it's praxis. That's when people are like, I don't know what to call this monster fucking. And I'm like, there is a technical term, but it's far less fun. So I'm not going to tell people it. <laughs> well, it's not more fun than monster fucking, then I'm not really sure I want to know. Not, but technically you would call it teratophilia. But monster fucking much more fun to get serious academics to say. <laughs> Gets right to the nod of things. Exactly. Mm -hmm. We could talk a lot and break down the historical references that tie Dracula's story into Vlad the Third. Then we can break down the art references for that, but it would be a lot. Yeah. I will say Nick Loris, who is a historian of 19th century letters and arts, does a really cool breakdown. I would also say that anyone who's interested in this film as an aesthetic object you should absolutely check out Mike Mignola's yes. comic adaptation it's of the beautiful, film, which is such an amazing piece of art. Yeah, I love that because one. it takes some of the greatest contemporary design and puts it through the aesthetic preferences and, and sensibilities of maybe the single greatest comic artist networking. That comic is great. I love it. It's so beautiful. I, I have the new color yeah. edition and it's it was so yeah, well absolutely. worth it. If you really want to pick apart this film and all of its visual cues, I really do recommend in this age of streaming, go get yourself a nice copy of Bram Stoker's Dracula on Blu-ray and really dig into it. Yeah. Because not not to sound too doom and gloom about it, the odds of you waking up and someone having taken all your physical media away from you are much lower than a studio deciding they want to absolutely gut their streaming service. That's true. And, and not to, like, get into voting with your dollar. Oh, yeah. God, yeah, no. We can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> but living in a capitalist hellscape, sometimes sometimes one must descend to yeah, creating you demand. Mm -hmm. um, you do what you gotta do sometimes. And it's, it's kind of an interesting counterpoint or, or accompaniment to the way that the film sits in reference to production techniques. You know, we've been mm -hmm. talking about how everything is on camera. Everything is done with traditional sort of movie magic. And this movie hits right as CGI takes off. You know, a few years later, The Phantom Menace drops in theaters and, and CGI is just here yeah. definitively. It's part of the toolkit now and the old toolkit is thrown yeah. to the side. Right. And then DVDs. And before you know it, it's just game over for 
like yeah. owning physical things. Netflix comes out a few years after that. Mm, all downhill from there. To me, do you know what um terroir is? Like the environment where grapes are grown mm-hmm. and how it affects the wine that you make from those grapes. To me, Dracula is like the terroir of a really adult complex sexuality. Yeah. This is this is like the soil I grew in. And if you understand this movie, you understand the art that I make, you understand how I navigate the world. It's so important to me. It feels like a parent or a mm-hmm. caregiver who I had sex with. <laughs> um, Complex emotions, though. Yeah, it's just a really like overwhelming relationship yeah. to have with a movie. This movie has been so many different things to me. It's been a sexual awakening, a queer awakening, a trans awakening, body horror mm-hmm. awakening, all of these things that are so important to me and as my life has changed it's resonated with me in all of these new rich ways and i just i want as many people as can appreciate that experience to have it for sure oh because i think it's Mm -hmm. very special i think there's something very special in a movie that can be all of those things uh all of those complex emotions and also yet somehow a comfort uh it's a it's a rare thing to find something that gives you so many awakenings and so many confrontations with parts of yourself, but also sort of feels like coming home in a way. And I think that's great. Yeah. Watching it at this point is sort of like taking my brain to a car wash that (laughs) instead of fitting water and soap, just like blasts it with common (laughs) blood. Sometimes you need it. Sometimes you really do. Well, Bex, what about you? Because this is, I mean, to be real, Dracula is your origin story. So I read the novel of Dracula when I was 13. It was the first like horror book I ever read and just devoured it, was obsessed with it. Watched every adaptation I could get my hands on. To this day, I think I'm pretty close to having seen all the Dracula adaptations going. That's so cool. Which I think is a mission that will follow me forever because they keep putting more out. But I think nothing quite strikes me like this movie and it's it's visual language it's willingness to indulge in its own excesses for I don't know good and bad depending on your view I guess but Mm -hmm. yeah there's something special about this and I think the production of it and the creation of it was such a perfect storm that I don't know if we'll ever get a movie quite like it again and I I'm grateful that it exists now yeah I agree So I want to take a little bit of time before we get off here to talk a little bit about your works. Manhunt is a foundational book to me now, and I am so thrilled to see it take off like Mm -hmm. it has. And I'm I'm so thrilled to see the reactions that I've seen out of people. And so I just kind of wanted to to get an idea about what it was like putting that book out into the world. And talk a little bit about Cuckoo in the Deadlights Theater, a project that you have going on Patreon, which I think our listeners would be really interested in. Thank you. And that means so much to me that my, my book is important to you in that way. Yeah, absolutely. That's, it, you know, it's it's really more than I could have ever hoped for. Oh, it's perfect. Oh, you pulled out the claws with that one. <laughs> like, I was rended. I really hope that people are ready for the next one, because as much as Manhunt is like a gloves-off sicko mode novel, I think that Cuckoo is much grosser. Excellent. Oh. 
and I'm hoping that people are willing to follow me there. It seems like anyone who's into my work yeah. probably will. <laughs> I'm just sat here rubbing my little paws together excitedly, like, let's go. <laughs> I heard the the title, and then I saw that beautiful cover that you have just unveiled. <sighs> Sarah Sicken. Working with Sarah Sicken is such heaven to me, just like... To get to say, oh yeah, the woman who designed all those fucking horrifying sculptures for season two of Channel Zero, yeah. she does my book yes. covers. Like, that's so good. Just the coolest shit imaginable. An artist who I was like gaga for upon first viewing. And it's also something that it's so counter to how a lot of mass market books can approach doing mm-hmm. covers with bigger publishers. One hundred percent. But I think that there is something very special of having an image so defining of the identity of that and book. so striking as well like instantly recognizable yeah it's so good the cuckoo cover was my idea and i'm so pleased with how it came out and you know obviously it evokes like this idea of false children mm-hmm. and unwanted offspring and children who are, are cannibalizing each other also just this hint there about what it's like to be broken amongst a cohort. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And the, the book is all about unwanted children. It's about queer kids and trans kids and fat kids and all of these different forms of child that parents look at and think that's wrong. It's yeah. gone wrong. It has to be fixed or destroyed. And the, the book actually, the idea came to me when I, I read a quote from an early autism activist, autistic himself, And his quote was, it occurred to me at a certain point in my negotiations with the medical and therapeutic professions that their deepest longing was for something that is not me to come and live behind my eyes. Yes, fuck, yeah. And it's just like, could you imagine anything more fundamentally terrifying? Yeah, horrifying. They they want you out of what they perceive as Mm -hmm. their body. Yeah. This little, this little person that they've made and who you are interloping by existing as. Almost, right, you know, that's also um, a hint towards changeling. I was going to say, it's almost a reversal yep, of that absolutely. where the changeling myth was used ostensibly as a way for people to explain away what autistic traits people were displaying. But in this case, is a replacing of what you have in front of you with something that is more pleasing to you because they can fit in. Absolutely. And that's, you know, that's the conceit of the book is that these children are sent to a tough love conversion therapy camp in the middle of the Utah desert. And something at that camp takes them and replaces them with a copy. And the copies are well-behaved and cis and straight and they go home to the families. And then what happens? Incredible. Fuck. Okay. Where can people pre-order Cuckoo? <laughs> and by people, we mean um, us. <laughs> let, me, let me grab you a link. We're going to put this in the show notes when we release yep. the episode. We'll also have this on the thread on the cursed site <laughs> when we release it. But you, you've got to check this out. And if you haven't read Manhunt, it is one of the best horror books that i have read in in ages it is one of the only gender apocalypse books you should ever even fucking think about the only other one that i'm going to give credence to is how to infect your friends and loved ones by tori peters who hopefully will be having a fuller edition of that released 
I know they were working on an expanded one. That's what I'm hearing. I haven't talked to Tori in a while, but I think she's still working on it. I hope so, because I am fucking ready to buy that book right now. (laughs) Oh, God, it's so good. It's also like, you know, obviously it was a big inspiration to me finding Mm -hmm. this like unapologetically all trans story about the end of the world. Yeah. And of course, we should also tell people to keep their eyes out for Brainworms by Alison Rumfit. Oh, yeah. Later this year. Incredible. Allison's a genius. Tell me I'm worthless. Was, oh, oh. Every time I read something she's written, I'm like, I want to throw it across the room and be like, well, why didn't I write this? <laughs> Which I think is like the highest compliment. Yeah, I'm going to crumble it down into a fine powder and snort it. <laughs> Just weave yes, it into my 100%. personality forever. But where can people find the Deadlight Theater? And tell us a little bit about that before we saunter out the door. Yeah, I'm happy to discuss it. Um, so the Deadlights Theater is a private theater that I run and it's a subscription service run through my Patreon. So you can, you can find it through my Twitter or just searching Gretchen Felker Martin Patreon. What it is, is I provide curation. I provide moderation of discussion during and after screenings and eight times a month or really 12 times a month, but for eight separate movies, I show a set of films that are all connected by a theme. Yeah, and you really do. You've got some real reach to get some hard to find films. Thank you. Thank you. It's very, it's tough and it's getting tougher. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, for legal purposes, I own physical copies legally purchased of every film I've ever shown. But just purely for theoretical purposes and the purposes of this discussion, a lot of torrenting sites have gone down recently and it's it's become quite challenging to to find film. I rely on a lot of cinephile friends. Mm -hmm. It's, It's tough out there. It but really is. I'm, I'm committed to continuing with it. And it's, I think what I love most about it is that it has succeeded in becoming this community where the, the primary reaction to every film is curiosity. Yes. Nobody's trying to figure out if the movie is right or if it's wrong or if it's problematic or if mm-hmm. it's, you know, good representation they're there to experience the movie as a set of sensations. That. They're there to open themselves up to what it has to say. And maybe there's some moral element to that, but primarily it's like, how does this make me feel? How does it make other people feel? What does it have to say about the world that I live in or the world that came before me? To me, that's what going to the movies is all about. It's all about jumping out of yourself towards what this artist has thrown out of their self and you perform this kind of spacewalk to meet in the middle and create the thing that is art i Um, could not say it better myself thank you i love that i love this idea of meeting i guess literature and media where it's at and approaching that with a sort of open heart and mind and curiosity rather than a desire to find something wrong yeah Right. Instead of approaching it from a moralistic rubric in which it must either fit that rubric or or be discarded or be discarded. Yeah, I'm just not interested in that. I'm not interested in being morally correct about all of art or making sure that everything I put out into the world is morally correct in all contexts for all people. Or even just morally correct to like what you believe. Yeah. Right. right. Because like there's this thing in media literacy now where like, if you write something people assume that that's something you would believe in a spouse yeah. which is just Ridiculous. so bizarre that has happened so routinely yeah, with manhunt there are so many people who are like 
wow, this author really needs to unpack her internalized transmisogyny. <laughs> and it's just like, how fucking dense are you? But it's still really incredible to encounter. And I'm sure it'll be mm. even worse when Cuckoo comes out because yeah. it's, it has teens as characters. And of course they fuck because that's yeah. what teens do. And it's like the things can just exist. So that'll, that'll be a fun experience to have. Every day is a new unwinding quarter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I actually think that the center is holding really well. And personally, my my falcon can hear me all the time. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> it's all good. Don't worry. He's always like, yeah, loud and clear. Well, Gretchen, thank you so much for joining us and taking the deep dive in this conversation on a beloved horror movie. Is there anywhere you want to tell people where they can find you online where to find you on Patreon, kind of just tell us where we can look for you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at scumbelievable. My my Patreon is under my own name, Gretchen Felker Martin, except no substitutes. And that's that's the majority of my online presence. Um, Smart choice, to be yeah, frank. Yeah, I, I, I keep it as low as it can. Next time, we are going to be joined by the other half of Team Blade Maidens, the co-creator of queer punk fantasy rock and roll comic, that is Blade Maidens with Zoe Tanell. We're going to be covering Fright Night, the 2011 remake. But in the meantime, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at outtogetyoupod. You can send your questions into outtogetyoupodcast at gmail.com. And we didn't have any questions come in because the show hasn't launched yet. But then I realized I have questions. So I have <laughs> some things I want to ask you all before we take yeah. off. One is that Dracula is a story that has stood the test of time. It deals with modernity and the ever-evolving state of that, as well as colonialism. So my question is, why, Beck, has there never been a Dracula holo novel? Episode? Oh, there absolutely Fuck. should be. Right? Oh. There should be. They do Sherlock Holmes, Robin Hood. Where the fuck is Dracula? I want to see every Star Trek crew dealing with Dracula right now. I, as I always love to see her. I just want to see Jadzia Dax doing everything ever. And I would <laughs> well, I would like to see her, I would like to see her showing up and being like, that's a parasite. Unlike mine, we're cool. You know who would be great as a Dracula in Star Trek? One of the other potential actors for Dracula in this movie, he was Francis Ford mm -hmm. Coppola's leading contender <laughs> that the studio wasn't thrilled about until they finally went with Gary Oldman, Jason Carter, who plays Marcus on Babylon yes. 5, was one of the contenders for Dracula yes. before Oldman got the role. And I think he'd be a great Dracula for Star Trek. Let's do Strange New World Dracula. Why not? Okay, I can see it. My second question is, if you could inspire any working director today to take on Dracula, Ooh. whose would you like to inspire? Oh, man. Whose do I want to see? I have, like, a conservative answer, an edgelord answer, <laughs> and an actual answer. You mind if I give them all? Yeah, absolutely. My conservative answer is that I would like to see Sofia Coppola's extremely mannerly yes. Dracula. I would, too. It'd be very fun. Yeah. I really enjoy her as a director. I think she's fundamentally yes. kind of aristocratic and mm -hmm. like reserved, mm -hmm. but in a very aesthetically accomplished way and not, not uninteresting no. either. I think her sensibilities would play really well against yeah. the material. Yeah, I think it would be a really, really rich result. My edgelord answer is Sam Levinson, who everyone <laughs> fucking hates right now, because I would love to see 
a wildly tonally inconsistent Dracula starring some beautiful 23-year-old <laughs> yes, trans Yes, actually, yeah. Uh, I would be there. And he's he seems to be the only one who will do that. <laughs> I would be CT. I, I yeah. love hacky, schlocky yes. exploitation jacks. Yeah. And I think if you view him as sort of like a really aesthetically talented trauma director, he becomes much more palatable. <laughs> and then my actual answer, the one that like I would be thrilled to hear announced I would really, really have loved to see, and you would have to go and pull him out of his grave. I would love to see Ken Russell's Dracula. Oh, that could be a lot of fun. Yeah. See, I I was sitting here thinking, Regarokai. Oh, yeah. I don't even care what they do with the source material. Just put a Dracula in there. Mm-hmm. But put some Dracula in there, right? Yeah. Just make it a stew. <laughs> but you had just said that bit about Ken Russell, so you want to follow up on anything on that? I, I mean... He's this like wackadoo Catholic who has obviously a very, very close relationship to queerness in some way that, you know, never fully came out in his own lifetime. Um, Mm. But he has a good sense of what queer people are like together and in community. And he, you know, not only does he have this like whole depraved aristocratic queer scene in The Devils, but there's stuff like Salome's Last Dance, which is framed as a performance of the actual play by Wilde with Wilde in attendance on the night of his arrest. And there's this, you know, there's a tremendous tenderness to it. And even if Russell himself is not queer, I think that he's so interested in people that it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm, I'm a firm believer that any sufficiently empathic and experienced person can tell a story correctly i loathe the notion that you have to be of an experience to write about an experience and that you can't just empathize and reach across and do the research and have the respect and do this right and obviously you know you can you can look at the 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 press around martin scorsese's upcoming killers of the flower moon and talk to all of the osage tribes people who were involved in its creation and in consulting on it and they're all like yeah he came to us repeatedly, listened to us. And as a result, the whole focus of the movie shifted. It's not just Martin Scorsese's movie, but at the same time, there's nothing to say that he couldn't do that, that he is inappropriate as the director. Yeah, we had that with our pre-release episode, our launch episode was on Bet, the trans vampire movie with Nicole Menzen. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Brad Michael Elmore, the writer and director of that, made a point of being like, oh, I, I did the reading, I spoke to like the trans people that I know, I got Nicole on board, and then once she was on board, I let her have all the input that she thought was required. And it's like, if you are willing to have an open mind and to listen to the people around you who have those experiences, there's no reason you can't tell a story that it's not insulting to people. Absolutely. Right. You just have to do the work and have the ability to know that you're going to fall. And when you do, you have the responsibility to say, this is what I fucked up. This is how I fucked up. And I'm sorry. My bad. I think it's it's treated as this life or death thing, but it's a process. Mm hmm. Well, what about you, Bex? If you could inspire anyone who is a a working director today. So I was very sad when Karen Kazama's Dracula got killed before production. That 
made me sad. I wanted to see that. I thought it would have been great. I think especially because as far as I read, it was specifically centered on Mina. I think the film was and they end up going to be called Mina Harker, which rules, actually. So I would have loved to see that uh, regardless of what she's going to do with it. I think also my other like swing, I would love to see like Darren Lynn Boseman do something with it, but in the style Ooh. of Repo and Devil's Carnival. That would be so cool. <laughs> like, let's make Dracula a terrible unhinged musical. There's a couple of them, but let's commit it to film. Yeah. In that same vein, fucking give Boz Lerman. Go on, try it. Give it a go. <laughs> Just try it. Give me something opulent and bizarre. I mean, Elvis was a horror movie, so let's go. <laughs> I still haven't seen it. I'll have to sit down and make time. I watched it at like two in the morning and was like, I feel like I've started to lose it a little bit. <laughs> What's happened? <laughs> well, Gretchen, thank you so much again for joining us. And I hope that you might want to consider coming back. Oh, absolutely. This has been such a blast, you guys. Great. I'm so glad. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. We want to create a good space for horror fans. We're often the subjects of these movies, but not often the people who get to yeah. speak about them. Right. And how they affect us. Yeah. Well, I really, really appreciate the opportunity. I would happily come back anytime. Yeah. Come and talk about any film that you don't get a chance to talk about in other platforms. We will always have a great time with them. <laughs> yeah. But until then, listeners... We'll see you before you see us. That's why. <laughs>